0: Communities are dynamic, as is the environment, always changing. So, our projects need to be designed and
1: built so that they can withstand those changes. They can evolve over time with those changes. You're listening to Shaping Sustainable Places, a new Skenska podcast. We're here to recognize, encourage, and inspire stakeholders in the industry and beyond to accelerate the transition to a more sustainable, resilient, zero carbon built environment. In each episode, we'll be speaking with industry and civic leaders, policymakers, and other champions of change to explore innovative solutions to real challenges. Extreme weather and related disasters have ravaged lives and communities around the world in 2022. The human and financial costs are mounting as such events become more common and more devastating. How are cities and towns adapting to protect their residents and mitigate the coming effects of a warming planet? In the coming decades, building resilience at the city level will be an essential urban policy and a wise economic strategy. Today, our host Heather Clancy sits down with three industry leaders to discuss the importance of resiliency and what cities like Houston, Texas or Los Angeles, California are doing to reduce their vulnerability to disaster and embrace innovative solutions. What is resilience? help pin down this very abstract term, Heather sits down with Sabrina Bornstein, formerly the deputy chief resilience officer with the city of Los Angeles, where she helped draft and implement the city's first resilience strategy. Sabrina is now the principal and head of climate resilience at Barrow Happold, an engineering and consulting firm that works to help cities and clients prepare for the changing climate.
2: So can you describe what climate resilience means in the context of? particularly of cities? Is this a
3: concept that's evolving? It's a really important question and a foundational one for this work. I often go to the 100 Resilient Cities. 100 Resilient Cities were responsible for building out a lot of the resilience offices throughout the world globally, including the city of Los Angeles. And their definition, sort of a version of it, is the ability to survive, adapt, and thrive in the face of chronic stresses and acute shocks. So really looking at this broader intersectional approach to addressing both slow-moving stresses such as aging infrastructure or lack of affordable housing, as well as these increasingly frequent and more severe events that we're seeing and experiencing from flooding to wildfires, for example. And then climate resilience in particular, which is what I tend to focus on. That's where we really look at a holistic integrated approach where we're looking at Ultimately, at how do we prepare for a changing climate and looking at it with an integrated lens, both for mitigation and adaptation. So both needing to do everything we can to curb our emissions, while also starting to understand that we're experiencing the impacts and we need to plan to adapt as well. A quote that I heard over 10 years ago now that has sat with me in terms of how I think about this work is from John Holdren, who's a former science advisor to President Barack Obama, and he said, we basically have three choices, mitigation, adaptation, and suffering. We're going to do some of each. The question is, what is the mix going to be? The more mitigation we do, the less adaptation will be required and the less suffering there will be. And so while I focus quite a bit on adaptation and the idea of Reducing that impact on people, and ultimately, it's a very human conversation, which is why I think people are really drawn to it. But we also have to continue to do everything we can to mitigate, because the more that we mitigate today, that will reduce the frequency, the speed at which we're going to have to adapt, as well as the potential impact on people. Mm -hmm. And so that's why it's really important to look at it from an integrated approach, because it's not about one or the other. So both needing to do everything we can to curb our emissions while also starting to understand that we're experiencing the impacts and we need to plan to adapt as well. How do you
2: see the focus on climate resilience focusing on being reactive to be more proactive? Do you see a shift in the thinking or is it still like crisis to
3: crisis
2: (laughs) as we've seen?
3: I sometimes say we're in a bit of an identity crisis because we're a little bit sustainability, a little bit emergency management and so what we're ultimately looking to do in many ways is move from we've talked a bit about recovery but moving to pre covery so how do we start to put in place plans for how we rebuild because so often when we're in a state of recovery or response we have to get people back in houses we have to rebuild as quickly as possible and having this lens of could we do things differently might actually be seen as a luxury because we don't have the time or space to do that, and often we rebuild as we were. And so the idea of being more proactive is to say, what can we do before we're getting hit with these additional events? What can we do now as we're thinking about the built environment, as we're thinking about infrastructure, because we often have a moment in time when we're building something to get ahead of and thinking about that lifespan and ultimately what can we do today to really try to plan for the future Mm -hmm. versus waiting to react? And so I think there's a shift, but there's still a challenge around creating that sense of urgency. But as we're starting to experience more and more of these, we're starting to see funding and legislation really elevate the need for climate resilience. So I think we're experiencing a shift But this is still a huge part of the work is to say, this is urgent and we need to do this Mm -hmm. before a major event.
2: Okay. So tell us a little bit about your work in Los Angeles. You worked on the city's first resilience strategy. Tell us a little bit about the journey, specifically the key challenges that you faced and the solutions that came out of that.
3: So again, the work with the city, it was through a partnership with 100 Resilient Cities Because of resilience being intersectional in nature, because resilience is about breaking down these silos, we really brought in departments, we brought in stakeholders to help draft and create the strategy versus it being this resilience team creating the strategy and putting it out. And what we did at the city is we looked at four major themes that were specific to the city of LA climate adaptation, infrastructure modernization disaster preparedness and recovery, and economic security. But to break down the silos and have it be cross-cutting, we organized the strategy by scale. So we looked at it from the individual and business level to the neighborhood level, city level, regional level partnerships. And because we understand that strategies may look different when we're thinking about different scales, And also, especially on the neighborhood level, LA is quite a large city. Different neighborhoods are going to be having different resilience approaches, concerns, shocks, and stresses. So, that was how we created this, I think, pretty nimble approach to resilience strategy. Part of the challenge is just the sheer length and magnitude and scale and scope of what we're trying to do. And so, we broke it down into looking at what are some of the more pressing. Goals and targets that we can really strive for in the short term. Things like cooling strategies and implementation for different cooling pilots in different neighborhoods, resilience hubs. I think that's been a really big topic for a lot of communities and cities. And then also the implementation of the seismic retrofit ordinance. So while I focus quite a bit on climate, uh, a lot of the history of resilience at the city of LA is because of earthquakes. And so part of the resilience office work was also around helping to implement and support the seismic retrofit ordinance that has been in place for a few years now. I wanna follow up on a couple of things here. First of all, describe a resilience hub. I think the best example that I know of that describes it is looking at Red Hook after Sandy. Red Hook in Brooklyn, New York. In Brooklyn, New York, exactly.
1: In the month of October 2012, the largest Atlantic hurricane on record swept across eight countries from the Caribbean to Canada. Known as Hurricane Sandy, this type three tropical cyclone caused a massive amount of damage off the coast of the northeastern United States. In New York City alone, 44 lives were lost and thousands more found themselves displaced. In the wake of this disaster, a team of organizations and residents of the Red Hook neighborhood in Brooklyn came together to develop the Red Hook Hub. The Hub is a public communication system utilizing physical and digital community bulletin boards to collect and display information relevant to the community needs during both crisis and non-crisis conditions.
3: Post-Sandy or during the event, It became really a model and a conversation that a lot of people have been looking at in terms of can we help support and invest in community-based organizations or different locations that have relationships and serve community members every day and then can be a place to go during an event where they have both the physical and social connections to help people connect and have a source of communication, to charge phones, to have some electricity access, that it be a place that is accessible during an event. And so it's been this concept that has really been growing over the last few years in terms of a lot of communities trying to understand how to support that. It's very clear that these climate resilience plans
2: themselves need to be able to adapt because we don't know what's happening. I mean, we can project and we have all these scenarios and we are using data to help us extrapolate what could happen in the future and what's likely to happen in the future. So how does a uh, climate resilience plan and the planners, how do they need to account for that? Uncertainty, the fact that we need to think about the future. Are we thinking 10 years into the future? Are we thinking 50 years into the future? And how do you make sure that you're leaving that room? to be able to evolve and adapt for that long-term scenario.
3: So when we think about planning for uncertainty and look at climate projections and climate data, we typically look at different scenarios because we don't know for certain. And also action we take today can change what the future looks like. So it's important to show the future is not set, but there are different scenarios for us to understand What are the different magnitudes or potentials that we should be considering when thinking about the future? So that means that we often look at different emission scenarios. So thinking through, if we continue to have higher emissions, what is that trajectory? If we're able to mitigate, it's a little bit flatter. And then we also look at mid-century and end-of-century typically. And so mid-century, We're not seeing as big of a divide from the missions perspective. That really hits us more as we get to end of century. But mid-century is where we often focus when we're thinking about planning horizons and thinking about 10, 20, 30 years out. So that's thinking a little bit more immediate, where there may be a little bit more certainty around what's to come. But then it's also important we often still look at that longer term horizon Because not all planning efforts happen within the next few decades, especially when it comes to infrastructure, as well as understanding certain risks, for example, coastal hazards and sea level rise, a lot of those impacts will get quite a bit bigger as you get towards the end of century. And so we want to make sure that we have different ways of looking at different planning horizons and different systems based on what is the lifespan of that planning process? What is the lifespan of that system? What is the lifespan of the building? And that can help inform the types of scenarios that you might look at. How would you
2: recommend or advise a individual in charge of climate resilience to
3: start thinking about this and where would they start? That's where I think the first step is to understand the magnitude and scope of the challenge at hand and what are the impacts. And so that way you could take something that can feel very daunting and very conceptual and make it more tangible and real and something where you can start saying, okay, so we know flooding is a real concern. Let's look at how it's been impacting our community in the past, or let's look at how it's been impacting our portfolio buildings. Where are we seeing concerns? What are some of the impacts? What are the costs? How is it impacting the people in the buildings, the community around the buildings? And then how do we start to plan for that? And what are the different solutions and approaches to address these impacts and these concerns? There's a lot of information we can learn from the past. So while I say plan for the future, we can still learn quite a bit from the past and sort of current experiences to help inform what to do next.
1: Looking to the past to know what's on the horizon is all part of building and rebuilding climate resilient cities. Next, Heather sits down with Christopher Wesley, Senior Vice President and Head of Strategic Services at the Skanska USA Commercial Department. His department creates value at the project level with the benefit of having subject matter expertise in marketing, communications, sustainability, and innovation. Heather and Christopher discuss the perspective of community stakeholders in terms of resilience and the industry, healthy places and communities, partnerships and collaboration, and the challenges of building for resilience.
2: Why is it important to those communities? And let's start with them.
1: First,
0: I think it's important to the community we develop because we have to be mindful of the changing challenges that we face from climate, from different needs within the society, From sustainability measures, so from legislation that gets passed to help get us to a healthier planet. So the projects play into that. I think also resiliency for us is working with the community. And so what I mean by that is communities are dynamic, as is the environment, always changing. So our projects need to be designed and built so that they can withstand those changes, they can evolve over time with those changes. We work with the community to address their needs. We're coming in with a new project. We know what we're trying to develop, but what we don't know is what's going on in the community. And we try to find that out by working with them, with engaging the stakeholders to talk about how we address the needs of the community within the project we're developing. And that's within the building as well as around it.
2: How is the perspective of these stakeholders changing with respect to resiliency and especially climate resilience? What are these stakeholders telling you and your teams about the need for this? How interested are they in this at this time?
0: It depends on the stakeholder. I think as a society, everybody's becoming more aware of resiliency and what that means in the built environment. So I think the more people are aware of that, they start to think of it. Certainly in certain ways, we are driving that conversation as a need. And oftentimes the cities within which we develop are driving that. So we are trying to anticipate where they're going. So there's different climate legislation or legislation tied back to climate that we know is coming, but also it's the way to build a resilient building. So in plain terms, what does that mean? It's looking at lower carbon emissions from the built environment and how do we mitigate against that? It's trying to anticipate for future climate events, flooding in some of our buildings and by thinking about those things, it addresses the community need as well. Those things are going on in the community, they're going on around the project. So it's our job to make sure that we address what we can in how we design the building.
2: So one of your firm's focuses is on, quote, healthy, resilient places for all, end quote. And that means healthy, inclusive, and climate resilient urban spaces, long-term community needs. Can you talk about some examples of how SCANTA is working on these priorities?
0: So when we talk about the development of a project, we have to do a lot of studies when we first look at the acquisition or the land that we're purchasing. We use different tools to do that, one of which is called Jupiter. So Jupiter measures or assesses the risk of a certain development, environmental risks being one of them. To land it, we use this at one of our projects in Houston called 1550 on the Green. In doing this assessment, we realized that there was a flood risk. So the way the team mitigated against that was to plan a project that was elevated as high as it could be from the ground floor plane. So we looked at it, we studied it, and the finished floor elevation, or FFE, was raised ever so slightly to address for future potential for flooding. So we do that very early on, include that in the design and working with the design team. One of the last things you just said, though, was about the community and looking at the community. And this goes back pretty early. But one of the things that we're trying to do as a firm is work with the stakeholders in the community. When we think about the stakeholders in the community, there's a diverse group of people that are involved there. One of the ways we're trying to get a more diverse representation of the community involved in it is working with a firm that brings minority students into the development process. So it gets them engaged in the process.
2: I'm curious to go back to the 1550 building. So how did you partner with the community on that? It sounded like a very forward-thinking design. So who was involved? Was it the city involved in helping plan for that? What community groups were helpful?
0: The mayor of Houston was instrumental and really interested in the 1550 on the green project. We had done a project in downtown Houston called Bank of America Tower. So this is our next project. And this project is unique in that it sits facing the green, Discovery Green in downtown Houston. So we really worked with our designers and the team tried to incorporate a lot of that green space into the building. So not only opening on to that, but providing a lot of outdoor spaces within the building so that you could bring the outside in, which we try to do at a lot of our projects. But for Houston specifically, that was one of the really important aspects of it. Houston is also unique in that it has district cooling, which we tie into which is one of the sustainable measures that we use and that we take advantage of. And we did a Bank of America tower. The other thing we did introduce there is the bipolar ionization and air filtration within the building. We've all been through the pandemic, and that has become certainly something that we've seen in all of our projects. Healthy air quality has been more of a focus. And I think we've always looked to incorporate that into our projects. But now that what we've all been through has kind of made everybody start thinking about it. So it's become more of something that people are looking for or asking for.
2: You mentioned the mayor of Houston and the interest that that city had in climate resilience. How can a firm like yourself or how does Skanska approach other cities? How important is it that mayors be included in this dialogue? Mayors, not just mayors, but the entire municipal government, if you will. How are they participating in pushing the climate resilience
0: dialogue forward? I think one of the main things is legislation, making requirements of developers. And to be candid, that can be challenging at times. So we try to work as much as we can and figure that out and anticipate that. An example of that would be getting away from using natural gas in buildings, so all electric buildings. And that's one of the things that you'll see in some of our projects moving forward. The MEP systems are electric. Everything in the building is electric. That's anticipating what the cities will put out as legislation coming up. So remaining close with them. And I think that's a two way dialogue that's informing them also of what's going on in the development world and how things are getting done and what's possible and where we're moving things, but also understanding the challenges that they're trying to address. I think in every city that we develop, we try to have that dialogue with other developers as well to make sure that we're all moving in the same direction that's responsible and achievable. Resiliency is also in the ever changing communities in which we develop. And one of the things, I think is important that we try to do is, it's not just at the project that we engage the community. We try to stay engaged throughout that. And what that looks like is volunteering, mentoring, staying engaged within the community and working with different people, not only getting involved in the development process, but also just in the community and educating people about the development process. Sometimes we all like to focus on what the need is of a project, but I think in our organization, we're in five different cities, Boston, DC, Houston, Los Angeles, and Seattle. And within each one of those communities, we are part of that community. So we try to fully engage that community throughout our time there, not just when we have a project that helps us be prepared, but it also helps us be a good member of the community. The
1: 1550 on the green is an excellent example of a community-focused project. And Christopher affirmed multiple times that it couldn't have happened without the involvement and support of the mayor of Houston, who just so happens to be our third and final guest of the episode. Heather had the opportunity to sit down with Mayor Sylvester Turner, who is a native Houstonian and has been in the office since 2016. Having been historically built with oil and gas, the city of Houston emits a large amount of greenhouse gas. However, Houston has been evolving since 1901, turning away from fossil fuel, and it continues to evolve today. The city has been on the front line when it comes to climate change and being located directly on the Gulf Coast has firsthand experience dealing with extreme weather conditions. In the last seven years alone, the city of Houston has faced several federally declared disasters. Heavy rains and flooding are happening with greater frequency, greater intensity, and cleanup and rebuilding is costing more and more. Mayor Turner works every day to protect his city and the underserved portions of his community and works to rebuild with resilience and sustainability in mind. He's also a member of C40, a global network of mayors working towards sustainability. He and Heather discuss resilient solutions he uses to move his city forward after disasters, the challenges he faces, and how he feels about the progress Houston has made so far.
2: What are you doing specifically in terms of mitigation and adaptation solutions in the city to, again, build forward?
4: You don't build back because if you build back, you build for failure. If you put people right back where they were, for example, when areas flooded, and if you don't mitigate or build in resilience, then you're just putting them back for the next storm and they're going to get hit again. So in February 2020, we put forth our Resilient Houston plan. And I might add that was underwritten by BP. A lot of action plans and strategies to deal with shocks and stresses year round. And on Earth Day in 2020, a few months later, the city put forth this first ever climate action plan. Four basic pillars. We are the energy capital world. Now we choose to lead in energy transition. Second pillar was electrifying our transportation sector. The third pillar was decarbonizing building optimization, energy efficiency for our buildings. And the fourth pillar was creating a building, a circular economy as relates to recycling and other elements. Those were the four major pillars. And we recognized that we had to do things differently, working in collaboration with many of these major greenhouse gas emitters in the city of Houston. And now we're in the process of implementing the resilient Houston plan, as well as the four pillars of the climate action plan.
2: So how does that get prioritized? I mean, you're probably working along all pillars at once, but what progress have you specifically made?
4: I think we made significant progress for the city of Houston. Let me give you some examples. The city of Houston now purchases more renewables, more renewable power than any other city in the United States. All 550 of our municipal buildings are 100% powered by renewables. That's a major shift, and not too many cities can say that. A part of the energy transition was working with entities like Greentown Labs that expanded from the East Coast to Houston, and their plan was to build 52.0 energy companies by 2025. They are way ahead of schedule. They are now at 64, 66 and we're still in 2022. Across the street from Greentown Labs is the ION, heavily focused on innovation. Those two working together are making a huge difference. A part of the plan is to plant 4.6 million trees by 2030. Two trees for every Houstonian that lives in our city, and we're moving forward on that front. With respect to landfills, in one of our low-income communities on the south side, Landfill opened in 1930s, closed in 1970, left 240 contaminated acres. As of the first quarter in 2024, if not sooner, we are reimagining that space, and we are building the largest urban solar farm in the United States. When it comes to solar power, for example, the usage of solar power has substantially increased in the last two to three years. So we're moving forward. Working with our companies in the energy sector, a strong focus on carbon capture utilization and storage, or clean hydrogen. Those are two big things where we're working to establish the Gulf Coast cluster on CCUS and clean hydrogen. So we're moving forward. In 2019, I established what we call EVOV Houston, electric vehicles, working with four entities in NRG, University of Houston, Center Point, and Shell. And the goal is 50 by 30, 50% of our transportation sector to be electrified electric vehicles by 2030. So we are moving forward on that front. We've entered into an MOU with the Houston Community College where they will train 500,000 Houstonians to be better prepared for extreme weather events, workforce training. So we're working in collaboration with them. Those are just some of the examples. And I don't want to overlook we're building higher in the city of Houston, not building it in the 100 or the 500-year floodplain. We're building higher. We're using more green stormwater for our infrastructure, a great deal of emphasis on parks and green space. All of those things that will put us in a much better place to mitigate future flooding And at the same time, placing a lot of emphasis on building more sustainable communities for people who have been living at the margins.
2: What challenges have you faced? These are wonderful programs and you actually sounds like you're moving pretty darn quickly. So what challenges have you faced and how have you overcome them through political allies, public-private partnership, any other sorts of efforts? You mentioned a bunch of corporations before. What does it take to come out and progress like this in terms of the community?
4: Initially, when we started, let's say in 2020 with the Resilient Houston plan and climate action plan, there was no federal mandate, certainly at the federal level, because in the previous administration, for example, the previous administration pulled away from the Paris Accord. It was mayors across the country that stepped in. So there was no federal mandate to do any of this. And quite frankly, there was no state mandate in the state of Texas. Regulators, the Public Utility Commission, ERCOT, they never talked about climate change. And quite frankly, they don't talk about it even today. So you didn't have a federal or state mandate. And with Houston being the energy capital of the world, 10 years ago, a mayor of the city of Houston would not even been talking about climate change. But we all recognized that things needed to happen, not just from an environmental point of view. But from an economic point of view, we have the number one port. Can you imagine a storm surge coming down Galveston and severely crippling the Houston port? It would impact not just Houston, not just this region, but us nationally as well. So there were economic reasons for us to take a shift. And so the challenge was to work collaboratively with the energy sector. In order to move things forward and to talk a language that we could all agree to. The challenge was to, when there is no mandate, how do you build consensus where you are creating winners and not winners and losers? And in order then to be successful, we had to partner with the energy sector. So on the Resilient Houston plan, that was underwritten by BP. On the Climate Action plan, that was underwritten by Centerpoint. And in order to impact climate change or have climate mitigation, you have to have resilience. In order to have climate change mitigation and resilience, you can't have those without talking about equity. So everybody needs to be at the table. All voices need to be heard. And then therefore you can come up with a situation with plans and strategies that are win-win and not plans and strategies that create winners and losers.
2: Can you tell us a little bit more about the I think it's called Sunnyside, the community solar.
4: Yes, Sunnyside.
2: How is that creating jobs? How is that creating economic opportunity in a place where there wasn't necessarily the same playing field as before?
4: Well, and again, being a a native Houstonian, I grew up on the north side and the Sunnyside landfill is on the south side, but very familiar with the area. And that landfill opened in the 1930s. 240 acres. It closed in the 1970s under protest because people said, look, this is holding down our community. Well, when they closed in the 1970s, it left 240 contaminated acres and nobody has stepped in to to clean it up. That's a big chunk of land in the middle of this community. It's like an anchor has been holding it down. Because it has prevented in large part other investments from coming into that area. And for decades, the last 50 years, the city and others have not been able to come up with anything. What we decided to do was to reimagine the space. And what I said to my team, let's reimagine. Let's put out some RFPs. Let's invite the world to come in and come up with some ideas. And there were several proposals that came in. And one of those proposals was to reimagine that space and turn it into a solar farm. And we've been working on it. TCEQ has given permission to move forward. We're now in the construction phase. And what it means is that it will generate enough power to power five to 10,000 homes. It will take one hundred and twenty million pounds of emissions out of the air. It's the equivalent of a 70 to 75 million dollar investment in that particular community. It will create green jobs for people living in that community. We are putting together a community benefit agreement for people living in that community. Now, once that happens and you have reimagined that space and it's now producing power. Is reducing greenhouse gas emissions, is creating green jobs, is transforming that community. I feel fairly certain that it will then start attracting other investments into that community as well. So, it can't look at it as just this particular project, but it is one that I think can be a catalyst for other investments that will be coming to Sunnyside. And so, this one project has the potential of transforming this entire community. And that's the equity piece of addressing climate change and what has occurred in that community for decades.
2: So how do you feel about the progress that you're making on climate resilience? Where do we go next?
4: I feel very good about what we are doing. We put it in place in February of 2020. A number of the goals and strategies have already been achieved. We got a dashboard where we kind of measure our success and you have to measure your success. It's not just about coming up with something on paper. You really have to measure it. And we are scaling things up. We are constantly looking for partners, even in the private sector. So I feel real good about where we are and where we're heading. And based on the examples that I've mentioned to you during the course of our conversation, And you can see that we are checking off the box on a number of these projects. But in terms of your question, how do I feel about where we are in the city of Houston? I'm ecstatic. To be the energy capital of the world, who would have thought that we would be purchasing more renewables than any other city? Who would have thought that 100% of our municipal buildings would be run on renewable power? Who would have thought that even the energy sector now would be working hand in hand with city leadership and building hubs and CCUS and clean hydrogen. green town Labs in the city of Houston focused on clean tech, climate tech. Who would have thought? But the reality is to the extent we are making significant progress in this city, it does not just benefit Houston, but because we have so many greenhouse gas emitters right here in the city of Houston, the ramifications will be felt globally. If it happens in the city of Houston, everybody benefits. Because if it can occur in the energy capital of the world, why can't it happen someplace else? And that's what I'm most excited about. Houston gives us an
1: excellent example of how to shift the focus away from fossil fuels and towards sustainable resilience in a place where you would least expect it. It's clear that all our guests in today's episode value equity and agree how important it is to involve the community and to collaborate across private and public sector lines. Everyone needs to have a voice in the discussion around creating sustainable and resilient cities. Because when we work together, anything is possible. We hope you enjoyed this episode of Shaping Sustainable Places. And a special thank you to our guests, Sabrina Bornstein, Christopher Wesley, and Mayor Sylvester Turner. Head to the show notes to learn more about the importance of climate resilience in cities and for links to any resources mentioned in today's show. If you enjoyed listening, be sure to subscribe and leave us a five-star review. And join us every episode as we continue to explore Shaping Sustainable Places. This podcast is brought to you by Skanska. We are a world-leading project development and construction group using knowledge and foresight to shape the way we live. Go to Skanska.com to learn more. That's S-K-A-N-S-K-A dot com.